Welcome to the Texas Values Report. This is Jonathan Sines, president of Texas Values. Great to be with you on a glorious Saturday in the great state of Texas. Hope your new year is off to a good start. This is only my second time on the show this year. I took a little bit of a break, if you will, from the show as I was traveling a little bit, catching my breath. You probably heard Nicole Hudgens come in a little bit, Andy Hogue from our staff. You know, we like to spread the love around here at the Texas Values Report. But hey, it's business as usual. You know, the year, it's a new year, but we, we're dealing with some of the same issues. And a, but a lot of new information coming forward and a lot of important things that are coming up this year. So you want to stay tuned in. And maybe you haven't heard the show before. Um, you know, look, this is our third year to be on the air with our friends here at The Bridge. But maybe for some reason the show hasn't crossed your path yet or vice versa. Welcome to our show. We're here every week on Saturday on, at noon. On the bridge, you can hear us online too. We're um, we've got podcasting on iTunes, Sound, SoundCloud. You can see us through our Facebook. All kinds of ways to connect with the show that we record here in the Greater Austin area. And so, look, you know, you you can get caught up too. Look, if you want, hey, you want to binge on the Texas Values Report? Amen. Go to SoundCloud. Go to our uh, past shows and check us out on on a long drive. I had a long drive. Uh, this past weekend, I'll talk a little bit more about that and some pro-life activities I was involved in in the South Texas area, which I love getting down to a lot of roots there for myself. But let's jump right in. We've got a great guest on the show today, someone who's been on the Texas Values Report before, but's back because he's got a new issue, a new book to talk to us about. Ryan Anderson is going to be our guest today. Ryan is the he's a PhD, he's the William Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, also the founder and editor of Public Discourse, which is an online journal for the, for the uh, of the Witherspoon Institute of Princeton, New Jersey. He's authored numerous books. He uh, he has his PhD as I mentioned and really considered one of the preeminent voices out there in our generation when it comes to the issues of religious liberty, life, and sexuality. Ryan, welcome back to the Texas Values Report. Great. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. Happy to be with you. Well, it's good to be with you. You know, look, you know, you, um, as I mentioned a little bit about Ryan's background, he also has a degree from Princeton, University of Notre Dame. And so when you think about you know, folks that are out involved in this, this work, you may think, you know, they work in D.C. and a lot of their work is related to that. That's true. They do work at the national level. Ryan has been to Texas several times, though. He travels a lot. He goes around to college campuses. I know he's mixed it up at the University of Texas before. My alma mater, um, we had him at an event in Dallas. And so, you know, somebody, if you want to get out to come out to your group and talk, I'm sure Ryan would love to come out and speak and, and arrange something even in the state of Texas, if you will, and where there are a lot of talk about these issues. But the main thing we want to talk with Ryan about today, he's got a new book out with a very interesting title, which I just, I read it, I was like, man, that's genius. Ryan's got some smart people around him and, and himself as well. The new book is called When Harry Became Sally. All right, sound familiar? You remember that old movie from many years ago, or some of us do, When Harry Met Sally. The book's called When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Movement, and a lot of good information here. Ryan, you've put out some tremendous books before that are timely about marriage, when the Supreme Court dealt with that issue, same-sex marriage issue, religious liberty after that. Now you're right on point with this issue. Tell us about your new book that's coming out later in February. 
Sure thing. So, you know, it was almost 30 uh, years ago now that um, when Harry Met Sally was released in theaters. And the big question in that movie was whether men and women could be uh, just friends. Uh, today, 30 years later, the big question is whether men can really become women. Um, it's no surprise that it's happening right now. Um, right after the Supreme Court redefined marriage, uh, activists uh, pivoted immediately from the LGB to the T part of the acronym. Um, as soon as they had achieved their goal in redefining marriage and they had achieved some of their goals on the um, lesbian, gay, bisexual part of the acronym, they pivoted to the transgender part of the acronym. And that's when we saw uh, things like the Bruce Jenner interview in 2020. That's when we saw the Obama administration issue the Dear Colleague letter that said every public school in the nation would have to open up um, bathrooms and locker rooms and sports teams based on gender identity rather than biological sex. That's, a, that's when we saw the Obama Department of Health and Human Services issue a regulation saying all health care plans had to cover sex reassignment uh, therapies and all relevant physicians had to perform them. Um, so this book is meant to um, examine what's gone on in the past uh, decade or so. Um, you know, how have we gotten uh, to this point? Um, but then also, what is the truth of the matter? What's the truth um, about the human person, about the human body, about our sex, our gender, our gender identity? Um, can a boy be trapped in a girl's body? Uh, can medicine uh, reassign sex? Is sex something that's assigned in the first place? Um, what's the loving response to a friend or a child experiencing a gender identity conflict? Um, what should our law say about these questions? Uh, those are the sorts of questions that I discuss in the book. Um, and, I, and I try to give um, readers um, uh, a way of thinking about these things that doesn't require a PhD. Right? So I, I have a PhD, but you can read and understand this book if you have a high school education. This isn't uh, meant only for fellow scholars and academics. It's meant for ordinary Americans so they can understand the truth. No, those are good points. And look, this is timely. You know, you think about the issues that we see every day, you know, in the media, on social media, in, uh, you know, in our interactions and, and things that people are discussing. And it seems to have happened so fast. You know, you think about some of the books you, you've put out in the past two or three years, um, you know, if you look at some of the work, Ryan, we're talking with Ryan Anderson, who's the author of the new book, When Harry Became Sally, responding to the transgender movement. Ryan is a research fellow at Heritage Foundation. He's had his work cited at the U.S. Supreme Court by Justice Samuel Alito, Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, you know, and, and he's been on numerous interviews. If you haven't come across them yet, you're going to be real excited when you do. And I like this book, you know, Ryan, and the way you have it laid out and the way you just described it. You know, as far as people that can read it, you know, I was speaking at a rally in South Texas last weekend on the life issue. And, you know, you and I, right, I mean, or people we interact with, maybe they have a Ph.D., they have a law degree. They, you know, they're in some level educationally or professionally that a lot of people aren't in. And so maybe they don't understand the issues or they don't want to open the book. They feel like they're not going to understand it. I love the fact that you're stressing that, you know, I started out as a sociology student at the University of Texas, and I could see a book like this being required or being a very good complement to some of the coursework as, as a young you know, student coming in that's a freshman, sophomore, whatever grade, and learning this information you know, and having good research behind it, having statistics behind it, having true stories. And I was looking through the book, and you know, if you go through the table of contents, 
I mean, some very important aspects here. The transgender movement, what activists are saying. And the one thing that struck me was chapter three. Detransitioners tell their stories. And that starts at page 49. You tell the story of an individual named Rhea Cooper from Britain who had a sex change. And then a year later, um, at 17, a year later, wanted to change back. And just some of the aspects and one of the things you quote in here Um, It says it may have seemed like the easiest solution to their distress, the sex change, but what feels easiest isn't always right. And that was an op-ed from The Guardian that you quote in your book. Uh, And I'm and, you know, I'm just pointing out this one chapter, a lot of great information here. But I bet a lot of people aren't aware of that. Those people that transitioned, if you will, and now want to transition back. Yeah, the um, the hardest chapter to research and to write um, was chapter three, the chapter on uh, people who transitioned and then detransitioned, uh, because the the grim reality here, and this is something that the mainstream media um, never really covers. You know, they tell the sunny stories about Bruce becoming Caitlyn and um, uh, uh, various kind of success, quote unquote, um, which frequently happen. You know, in the immediate aftermath of taking the hormones or taking the surgery, what they don't tell is what happens five years later or ten years later. Um, you know, what happens with people who transition in their teenage years, and then in their late 20s or their early 30s, they regret it. Um, and they try to detransition, but, you know, once you've remo- removed certain body parts, uh, they don't grow back. Uh, once you've been taking artificial uh, hormones for the opposite sex um, for a decade, you've changed your body in ways um, that can't be fully undone. And the harm that this causes to people... Um, uh, it, it's terrible, and it, it was very hard, you know, just to, to, to read uh, the essays they've written, to watch the YouTube videos that they've made, um, and to then uh, summarize this and, and write about it in the book, um, because the stories are just heartbreaking. And unfortunately, what we're doing right now in so many of America's uh, public schools is saying that it's, an enti- it's entirely normal uh, for boys to claim to be girls and to identify as girls, and for girls to identify as boys, and to then put those children on puberty-blocking drugs, um, to encourage them to use a new name, a new pronoun, to, to wear a new wardrobe, to use a new bathroom and locker room, uh, to then give those children the opposite sex's uh, hormones, testosterone administered to young girls, estrogen administered to young boys. Um, and these kids, as they grow up, uh, many of them come to regret it. So that that third chapter is really meant just to give those people a voice. Um, well, we're talking the other thing with, I will add, we're talking with Ryan Anderson, who's author of the new book "When Harry Became Sally." You're hearing us to discuss some aspects of the book. Sorry, I interrupted you, Ryan. Go ahead. Oh, I was, I was saying the other thing I'll add is that um, the best studies of gender dysphoria in children—I mean, the studies that even activists on the left use—show that eighty to ninety-five percent of young people that have gender identity conflicts will naturally grow out of them. Uh, they'll naturally resolve those gender identity conflicts. They'll come to identify with their bodies if you don't intervene and lock in uh, the mistaken identity. 80 to 95% will just automatically, naturally grow out of it, come to identify uh, with their bodies. But if you start doing the transition, First, a social transition with the name and the pronoun and the wardrobe, then puberty blockers, then cross-sex hormones, then, God forbid, the surgery. Um, You're locking in this mistaken identity, uh, and and it can do uh, a a world of harm. 
Well, and we're talking with Ryan Anderson, author of the new book, When Harry Became Sally. If you're watching online, you can see me holding up a copy of the book in the title, the cover. The, what you just said a minute ago is just ringing in my ear. When you change your body parts, they don't grow back. I mean, and, and it's so interesting, Ryan, because, you know, the work that you and I are involved in, you know, you'll have people all the time that are negative and just say negative things about what our motivation is. And people will ask me or they'll come up, you know, with negative assumptions. I mean, and I'll just speak for myself. I'm sure it's true for you as well. But we care about people. I mean, there are realities to these type of decisions, as you point back, that aren't reversible. You know, and, and I enjoy what you're doing with this book and so much with your work because it's coming out so quickly in the middle of this issue. And a lot of times people won't, will say these stories don't exist. These um, examples don't exist or there's not information from the other side, if you will, or that is objective or just talks about the science, the biology, what the status are saying. I know um, my friend, Professor Mark Regneris at the University of Texas has come under scrutiny for just trying to put out information on some of these type of issues. But it's really important. And I think it can be extremely helpful because a lot of people, frankly, are nervous. They're intimidated about putting information out there like this because they get attacked. But it goes back to the value of it. And hopefully people can get educated on these issues before it's too late. Oh, of course. I mean, so this is not a book that I wanted to write. Um, the idea that um, those of us who are trying to um, help people understand the truth about gender and gender identity and gender dysphoria are doing this because we're, uh, quote, transphobic or because we're trans bashing or because we hate trans people um, is ludicrous. Um, the reason uh, people like me uh, do this uh, is precisely because we care about uh, first place, I mean, children who are struggling with their identities, uh, but just more generally, anyone who is struggling. Um, and right now, what we're seeing is that there's an ideology um, about human nature, about the human body, about human sexuality, about gender. Uh, and this ideology is saying that it's all plastic. It's all malleable. Uh, it's all fluid. It all exists on a spectrum. Um, and it's not true. And when people live out um, these ideological commitments that aren't true, uh, it doesn't bring wholeness. It doesn't bring flourishing. It doesn't bring happiness. Um, so what I had wanted to do, I'd written a dissertation about economics and justice and property, and I wanted that my next book to be that book. But when I saw this transgender um, ideology almost coming out of nowhere and rising to prominence so quickly uh, and getting the entire Obama administration, the Department of Justice, the Department of Education, the Department of Health and Human Services, um, fully on board and issuing all of these mandates. Um, I just had to stop what I was doing and devote myself more or less full time um, to researching and writing this book um, because it had to be done and it had to be done in a way that would be accessible and understandable uh, to normal people. Um, so it's written, I hope, in a way that's uh, readily readable. It also it makes no appeals to theology or revelation. It's just based on science, on medicine, and on philosophy. It looks at the best uh, the best biology, the best psychology, and the best philosophy um, to show what do we know about the truth of the human person. 
Well, I bet a lot of this information for most people, they're going to be reading some of it for the first time. I mean, you know, most people have not come into touch with a lot of these issues prior to the last couple of years. And so to them, you know, it's something they probably don't know a whole lot about. Maybe they've heard a couple of quotes or they heard some slogan from somebody's campaign on a policy issue. You know, they've heard the 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 number thrown out there that, you know, there's some there's this 40 percent suicide rate under, you know, amongst uh, transgender individuals or however they quote it. And they don't really know much more, you know. And so I really enjoy it. I look at the end of the book here. We've got uh, 211 or so pages, 213, a lot of good stuff in here. You know, when you mentioned about what the Obama administration did um, that, and a lot of people don't realize this, it's one thing, you know, we're not talking about whether or not someone decides to do this. I mean, we are talking about whether someone decide, makes a decision about whether or not to do this, to, to make these changes to their bodies. But as far as the government's concerned, they've moved even past that point to where they are using taxpayer dollars. They're, they've already taken a side, if you will, on this issue. They've already essentially said, there's nothing to be concerned about. There's nothing wrong with this. We'll pay for it. We will use tax dollars to pay for this if you want to change your body parts, if you want to go through this this transgender surgery. And, and that is a lot of distance to move in such a short time. And so towards the end of the book, you talk about this issue, about policy considerations, what are you seeing or what do you think is up next uh, for 2018 on the policy front? And we got a different administration in there now, uh, President Trump. But what, are, what should we be looking out for for those of us like myself that are involved in this issue from the policy perspective? Yeah, I, I think at the federal level, um, not very much will happen. Um, I think that within the first several months of the Trump administration, they undid um, much of what had taken place during the Obama administration on gender identity issues. So they rescinded the Dear Colleague letter that forced all the public schools into um, reshaping their bathrooms and locker rooms and sports team access policies, opening them up based on gender identity instead of biological sex. So the Trump administration has undone that. They, um, there's a court order that had undone the transgender health care mandate, and they didn't appeal that court order, so that more or less left uh, left it. Um, um, dead. The, the, the question now will largely be, I would say, for the next um, two and a half, three years uh, at the state level. Uh, and so right now we see that the ACLU is suing two Catholic hospitals, one in New Jersey and one in California, under state laws. And so these state laws, and, and the lawsuit here is claiming um, that because these Catholic hospitals won't perform sex reassignment surgeries, they're discriminating on the basis of gender identity, and discrimination on the basis of gender identity is illegal in New Jersey and in California. Now, one of the things that's important for listeners to understand is that there's a radical difference between a hospital saying, we won't perform your chemotherapy because you're transgender. Now, that is discrimination on the basis of gender identity. But that's radically different than a hospital saying, we won't do sex reassignment surgery on anyone not because you identify as transgender, but because we think sex reassignment surgery is bad medicine. We think the appropriate therapeutic response to gender dysphoria is mental health care and psychology and psychiatry. It's not surgery. It's not hormone therapy. But these lawsuits right now are saying that if you won't do the hormone therapy and the surgery, when you would do it for other medically indicated reasons, if you would do testosterone treatment for men with low testosterone, you have to do testosterone treatments for women who want to become men. 
if you would perform a hysterectomy or a mastectomy or a woman on a woman that has cancer, you would have to perform the mastectomy or the hysterectomy on a woman who wants to become a man. That's what these lawsuits so, are claiming. And so I think we're going to see some of that at the state level. Well, and look, a state like Texas, you know, we've been involved in a lot of these issues that relate to this. Uh, you know, and here's the thing, right? We, we worked on a, a bill last session last year to protect the privacy so government entities could not in, uh, introduce and have policies that allowed men to go into women's bathrooms, shower rooms, and locker rooms. But what, what I think I hear you saying, and I want to make sure I'm saying it the right way, like not likely to see things going in the Obama direction, if you will, and paying for transgender surgeries and things of that nature, or a lot of activity at the federal level. But in the absence of that, so yes, those the the dear colleague letter for public schools that would have allowed boys in the girls' bathrooms or forced them to, that's been rescinded. But then, but there's really an absence at the state level. So, like for states like Texas, where you don't have the federal government saying you've got to do it, you've got to do it this way. But there's not a state law, so you could see people at the local level pushing these issues, which we do in the state of Texas. But then you got places like California and New Jersey where they have state laws. And I want to make, make sure people heard this, our listeners heard this. They're suing a Catholic hospital. This is not a taxpayer-funded public hospital. They are suing a religious private entity on this issue. Where, when they're, and they're using a government law to punish these religious entities. Am I right? Yes. So, I mean, and, and, and thankfully, I mean, we don't yet know if they'll be successful. Uh, the courts have not yet ruled on these. But this looks very similar to what we saw in the abortion context. Uh, we have seen uh, recently a 40-year consensus that you don't make pro-lifers perform abortions or pay for abortions. We've seen that 40-year consensus come undone when the Obama administration was going to make the little sisters of the poor uh, provide a coverage of these drugs. They were going to make the owners of Hobby Lobby include the morning after pill as part of their um, health insurance. Um, the same thing is now going to be at stake, uh, not with respect to abortion, but with respect to sex reassignment procedures. Uh, will conscientious physicians um, have to perform these procedures when it violates their conscientious beliefs? And will organizations have to pay for them when it violates their conscientious beliefs? Yeah, these are, I mean, and, and this is this is what's happening right now. I want to make sure our listeners understand. And just don't think, oh, that's New Jersey, that's California. There are efforts to do the same thing in Texas that we have been successful at fighting against, but that doesn't mean we can stop someone from filing a lawsuit. I mean, it could happen at any day, and whether or not they're successful, we'll see. But we see people buckle and compromise all the time just because someone files a lawsuit on these issues. And people used to say, you know, just a year or two ago, oh, they're not going to sue the church on this issue. They're going to leave religious entities alone. And we argued that that would not be the case. And, I, and I'm not happy that it is happening. It's not one of those things I told you so with glee. You know, those that concern remains. And so we need to be vigilant on these issues. Ryan, before we wrap up, you know, we are celebrating a week or so, if you will, in remembrance and reflection on the Roe versus Wade decision, speaking of how court cases can have an impact on policy, um, going on now 45 years. I was born in 1973, so I can always remember what you know how many years it's been. But it's not something that I, um, as well, that I reflect on with a lot of excitement. But it's important to have perspective on it, and we have seen some improvements, if you will, in the pro-life movement, uh, the change of hearts and minds, along with policies. But there's still a lot of work to do. You spent time at the March for Life. Um, what do you see, and, and what's your kind of feel about this issue and the direction things are headed in 2018? 
Sure. Yeah, I was um, I was at the March for Life uh, last week, um, and what's always amazing to me is how um, I keep getting older, but the marchers keep getting younger. Um, <laughs> it's this young, joyful occasion where you know hundreds of thousands of your closest friends uh, spend the night on school buses, um, overnight riding to the nation's capital to bear witness to life. And unlike the Women's March, unlike so many of the other um, marches that come to D.C., uh, these people aren't screaming epithets. They're not uh, uh, marching with you know obscene signs. They're not being vulgar. They're not being uh, fill-in-the-blank. Um, they're having a peaceful, prayerful, uh, joyful, in its own way, a vigil. And they come to the nation's capital to bear witness to the truth about the dignity and the sanctity of every human life, uh, born and unborn. And what's encouraging here is that you see that the um, younger generation generation, one of the chants that they were chanting is, we are the pro-life generation, um, doesn't buy into the dogmas and the ideology of the Roe v. Wade generation. Uh, the activists that gave us abortion on demand, uh, they haven't persuaded uh, the next generation that it's a good thing. And so um, the heart and soul of the pro-life movement is young people, uh, young people who survived uh, Roe v. Wade. Yeah, no, you're and this is yeah. unlike so many other yes. movements. No, I mean, to say it that way, you know, and and look, I really started this in this movement, if you will, when I was a young person, and then it got to a whole nother level when I was a, a law student at the University of Houston. We had to sue the University of Houston for the free speech rights of our pro-life group. It's hard for me to think and imagine, you know, that that's been, uh, gosh, almost, almost 15 years ago. And so, and you're right, it's great to see the movement getting younger, if you will, or more young people engaging and for them to have that perspective, have lived in this climate and society where that is the law of the land, if you will. But I see so much to be encouraged by. Nicole Hudgens from our staff, who is younger than me, uh, quite a bit younger, was there as well as a part of that millennial generation, if you will. And and look, I have three kids, you know, so I um, I have been pro-life in that sense. And you've got, as I understand, a child on the way, a baby Anderson on the way. And we just, you know, want to want to say um, congratulations to you before we wrap up the show. That's something to be very encouraged by. Yeah, we're, uh, my wife and I are very uh, excited about this. Thank you. Great. And we, you know, we got to visit with uh, Ryan not too long ago, so we're excited for him. But, you know, this work that he does continues to be important. I'm going to hold up the book again, When Harry Became Sally. Ryan Anderson coming out later in February. You want to get a copy of this book. Uh, I don't think you'll find anything out there like it. Ryan, thanks for being our guest on the show today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. All right. Good stuff. Man, Ryan, boy, could spend so much time talking with him. A wealth of knowledge. He is the tip of the spear on so many of these important issues of faith and family. So we're just glad to have him. We're about out of time, so I'm going to wrap things up. Go to txvalues.org. And I didn't get to talk a lot about my pro-life experience from last week, and I'll talk about it maybe in the next week or two when I was in South Texas. You can go check us out on social media, on our Facebook page. You can give at txvalues.org, where you can support faith, family, and freedom in Texas.